Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome back to Changes. I am Annie McManus. This is a place where we discuss all things change and how it affects us. I hope you're all right. I hope you're doing okay and you've settled into October all right. This podcast is all about change and I wanted to let you know about a personal change of mine. Not a big extreme change, but a kind of very slow change. Like think of a cruise liner in the sea, like a massive, massive boat and how slowly a boat like that changes course. That's kind of my change. It's been happening in my head for a while anyway. I've been wanting to try new creative avenues as well as broadcasting and music. And one of those has been writing. I've written all my life, journals mainly. I did uh, English literature in, in, in university and loved it. And I've always wanted to have the discipline to try and kind of do a body of work when it comes to writing. And over the last couple of years, I've been kind of squirreling away any time that I've had 40 minutes here, an hour there, two hours on a Sunday afternoon when the kids are watching a movie and I've been writing and I have a book finished and being published. It comes out in May 2021. It's called Mother Mother and it is set in Belfast and it's literary fiction. So it's nothing to do with me or my life um, but it is a story that I hope you will be compelled to want to read and finish but that's my big change for this week because I'm announcing it to the world this week yeah excited to be able to tell you about that okay on with the podcast this episode is really interesting it's a deep one this week uh, and it's an episode all about ideological change it shows just how dramatic change can be and it shows just how extreme people can go when it comes to change if you've ever been undecided about whether people can change ideologically when it comes to extremist views then this episode will really help you decide change can happen to you and be forced upon you but sometimes you can make conscious changes yourself and may even go further and use that decision to affect change in other people and that is precisely what our guest today has done his name is Nigel Bromage. He's a former neo-Nazi who was groomed into extremism and radicalised as a teenager, spending over 20 years in organisations such as the National Front, the British Movement and Combat 18. Nigel has since turned his life around and in a very brave move, now helps people to leave far-right extremism through his organisation Exit UK, which he founded himself. It's not just about helping people leave, it's also about helping people avoid being radicalised and groomed. In this conversation, he talks to me about how he was recruited, what that experience was like and why after 20 years in the far right, one particular incident cemented his decision to walk away. It goes without saying that this episode discusses some really heavy topics that you might find sensitive. So go check out the show notes for all the details. But do please give Nigel your full attention because he is an incredibly courageous man. And uh, I think that the work he's doing is beyond important. Delighted to welcome to the Changes podcast, Nigel Bromage. 
Nigel Bomage, hello and welcome to Changes. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you, Anna. Thanks for the invite. Such a pleasure. You are a man who's experienced some some real changes, and we talk about change in this podcast all the time, and it's all different types of change, but this is a kind of ideological change. We've never really had that in the podcast, so I'm really interested in, in your journey in and out of that change. So let's start, if you don't mind, to life as a teenager before your first change, if you know what I mean. Describe what life was like for you. Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a working class lad. I was brought up in a high-rise block. As a young person, I love my football. I'm a Birmingham City fan for my uh, sins. So, you know, we don't know much <laughs> about success, but that's fine. <laughs> when I was young, you know, I was really interested in music. I uh, followed various sort of genres, but, you know, I was really happy as a as a punk, and that was where I sort of felt at home. But I listened to loads of other stuff. Reggae music was a really good passion of mine. Growing up, I didn't really sort of get involved with, you know, anything which was political. It was just like every other person, you know, music, going out, enjoying myself, mm. trying to do good at school, which, you know, wasn't always easy. I grew up with my mum and dad, again, were both working class, very left-wing, yeah. and, you know, they uh, they always taught me if I believed in something, then I should stand up for that. Did you have brothers and sisters? No, no, no. I was um, I was an only child, so it was just me, you know, mum and dad, and you know, growing up like that. Yeah. Okay. So, what kind of a kid were you? Were you shy? Were you outgoing? Did you have friends? Yeah, yeah. I was, um, you know, I was um, growing up. I, you know, enjoyed my football. That sort of gave me, a, you know, a good circle of friends. Music right. widened up the friendship circle, which was really great. Like going to concerts, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you know that that was really really important to me at the time. So then, talk us through the the change um, to you being involved in the far right. Yeah, of course. So I was actually recruited at school, and it was as simple as somebody giving me a leaflet at school. The leaflet was an anti IRA leaflet, and you know, with an accent like this, obviously, you know, living and being brought up in Birmingham. So there was there was quite a um, sort of strong feeling towards the IRA, you know, from the city as a whole. And the leaflet just talked about, if you think terrorism is wrong, do something about it. And, you know, what really hit me was there was a picture of a bomb victim. And that, that, that picture really sort of triggered me to think, do you know what, I need to do something about this. So I went back to the gentleman and I just said, you know, you're right, terrorism is wrong, what can I do? And at that point, he just, you know, he was really relaxed and that's what I thought really, you know, strange. I thought, you know, he would have a quite an intense sort of personality. But actually, he, he, he was really friendly from the very start and just said, you know, I'll take some time to think about it. If you want to get involved, I'll I'll come back in a few weeks and you can talk about it. And then eventually he did... And I, I got involved with an organisation called Birmingham Against the IRA. And what did you think that organisation was at the time? Did you think it was just a specifically against the IRA? Yeah, definitely. And was it that? I just thought, you know, this organisation is against the IRA. You know, when I first started going to a few of the meetings, it was all about being patriotic, you know, anti-terrorist, right. standing up for Britain. Um, there was no mention of race, colour, religion, anything like that. But then, eventually, I found out he was actually a front for a group of National Front supporters locally. And the whole idea was to recruit people on a single issue and then, via that, then get them involved into other more extreme groups. 
Can you remember the turning point in terms of your realization that this was something more? Yeah, it was it was really sort of surreal. So I was given an envelope, and if I'm honest, I thought, oh my god, not more leaflets to hand out. I'm getting a bit bored of this already. And um, so that's what you were doing. You were kind of working for them, just handing out leaflets. Yeah, we were handing out leaflets. You yeah. know, we were sending, you know, whether it was football matches or concerts, whatever it was, just trying to raise the profile. And when I got this envelope, it was quite bulky. But when I opened it up, the thing that really shocked me, what fell out, was a National Front membership card. And, you know, being brought up in a left-wing household, I'd obviously been told what the National Front was like, etc. And, you know, I sort of, I just was really shocked. And I was like, well, what's going on? How am I a National Front member? And then they explained it was very much like um, Birmingham, the RI was a front group. And they wanted to recruit people and show how, you know, um, terrorism was wrong. But actually, it would introduce you to the bigger, wider battle we was against. And then I spoke to some of my friends and said, listen, I'm not happy about this, I want to talk to some others. And then they just said, give us one chance, you know, you've not heard anything racist, you've heard no racist jokes. And they were right, mm. I hadn't heard anything mm. like that. Um, and I said, OK, I'll give you six months. And that six months turned into nearly 20 years as I went through the, the whole movement and all the different groups I was involved in. What was happening at home when this was all going on? Um, home was sort of, if I'm honest, it was um, it was a bit of a sad place, really. Mum was dying of uh, cancer, um, so that that was quite tough. And basically, you know, they they came and sort of stepped in. They um, offered support. They took mum to um, hospital appointments. They got me to sort of help run the house. The ladies come round, and it's not just lads that are involved in these uh, groups. There is uh, wives as well. You know, they taught me how to cook food, you know, how to sort of survive, how to pay bills. Dad was an HTV driver, so he was away a lot. And I had to learn how to run the house, you know, having no brothers and sisters. It was down to me, really. And, you know, mum was sitting in the bed downstairs with a commode and that was, that was her life for the next couple of years. And was your mum aware of this kind of new group that you were joining? Did she kind of understand what was happening at that time? Yeah, she was she was really sort of shocked at the beginning and obviously I tried to keep a lot of politics away from her because I knew um, obviously what she would think. However, because they were really manipulative and helpful and supportive, she was angry but also she welcomed the help and, you know, yeah. they were really good at sort of getting her on side as well. But mum and dad would always try and sit me down and talk about politics and, you know, talk about why they believed in socialism and why it was so important to them. They wanted me to be join the Labour Party Young Socialists and life would have been so much easier. But, you know, that was that was not the path I took. So these people that were helping you out, did they feel like friends? Like, were you kind of making really good relationships in there? Yeah, definitely. I think I think the way it works with these individuals, and you know, it happens as well today. They become your best friends. They try and cut you away from your old friends. They would keep telling me you need to have time for yourself. You know, we'll look after your mom. Here's some free tickets to the football or concerts. But when I look back, actually, that was all about getting you to embrace a new group of friends and reject your old friends. And the old friends I had eventually just walked away because they they couldn't they couldn't change my opinions because the people in 
the far right, you know, they were offering me support, they were offering me new things to do, they were offering me an alternative music scene, and I just embraced it, I absolutely swallowed it and, and took it all in. Your mum passed away, you must have felt really alone and grieving and scared. Did did you feel like your home life situation ended up making you want to be part of a family situation more? Yeah, they they offered me alternative and an alternative family really. So um wow, okay. you know, they they became like, you know, family number two. Um dad didn't cope well, if I'm honest, so he started to drink a little bit more than he you know, anybody should. Yeah. I didn't handle the grief very well either. As a young person I got involved with alcohol, you know, went on to other substances, uh, and it was just about trying to sort of numb that pain. But because I was so angry, um, I think, you know, the far right gave me somewhere to release that anger as well. How old were you, Nigel? Um, When Mum passed away, I was 18. Right, right. So what happened next? You started doing this regular, you know, these regular things with them. You were channeling your anger into them. When did it become part of your actual just normal existence? Um, I think for the first couple of years I, I was involved and I was just like, um, you know, sort of a, a foot soldier, you know, doing bits and bobs, demonstrations, that type of thing. But I think once Mum passed away, I needed something to fill that hole. And uh, the far right, again, they offered me something to do. You know, they spoke about, we need to train you and get you to sort of, you know, develop your passion. And and it, and it just gave me something to, to do and sort of give me a direction. And then what I did then is I eventually got bored with the National Front. I didn't like the fact that, you know, you'd stand in elections and you'd get poor results. Um, so I looked for something more extreme and then eventually moved on to a group called the British Movement. The British Movement is a is an openly Nazi organisation which is over 50 years old, still operating today. And, you know, I quickly rose up the ranks and become a, a West Midlands organiser for them. And then it was really about promoting, as awful as it sounds, you know, National Socialism, Nazism, and forgetting things about elections and trying to intimidate communities, try and raise the feeling of fear and try and create an us and them split within the community. It's so mad, Nigel, just hearing you talk about this because I'm looking at you and you're like the most genial, lovely, kind man, two daughters. Like I can't, I just can't equate you now with being someone that was so full of hate that you could do that. I can't figure it out in my head. Yeah. Uh, we actually had this conversation in the office yesterday where it was, uh, we've got a new colleague who joined us and said, you know, you seem so calm and mannered. And yeah. we spoke about actually, you know, I absolutely abhor violence now because of what I've seen and, you know, what I've been involved in. I'm, I've, you know, I'm no saint and I absolutely hate and detest it now. I look at the old me as somebody completely different. I struggle to sort of relate to that individual, um, you know, but it was me, yeah. you know, I take ownership of what I did, what I said, what I'd done, and it's all about creating a positive from a negative, I think. I mean, you had, by the sounds of it, like a reasonably loving upbringing, and for me, I kind of try and equate, like, surely people must have gone through violence as children or experienced this in order to be able to inflict it. So it's I'm just so interested in the kind of the, the, the psychological path that you took. So from the British movement, tell me about Combat 18. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I really hated the IRA, whereas the British movement advocated a united Ireland. 
and I struggled with that from day one just because I felt all the people who had died in the bomb attacks, it was disrespectful. Mm. So that and also the lack of action from the British movement uh, and a lot of talk, I decided to contact others. And that led me then into contact with a group called Combat 18. I then decided that there was the way to go because it was pro-Ulster. It believed in direct action. So at that point, I'd become so frustrated and angry you know, my main enemies were the left wing and the government and the system and not people of colour or of different religions. It was more of a fight against the state. And, and you know, C18 offered yeah. me that vehicle to, to take that battle on. And unfortunately, my dad got killed in a vehicle accident at 23. So I was just completely lost. And, you know, the far right offered me that family to, to carry on. Whether I wanted help with jobs or anything, they were there throughout. And how did you make a living? I, I had a you know a job sort of in the day. I was very much a bit like right. I am today. I was like Mr Clean, really nice, you know, help anybody. And then you know, come knocking off time, you know, I'd basically sort of become Mr Ben, jump into the cupboard, and you know, become a become a neo Nazi by the evening and the weekends. How would you go through that change? And prepare for it. Well, the far right, we always explain, actually, the far right aren't, aren't thick or stupid. You know, you get supported mm. and trained to deal with situations like that. So you learn to live a life in the normal world where you will lie through your teeth and, you know, you will basically cover up everything. And then on the evenings and weekends, you can actually follow the, what you would class as the right path and you would just feel that the normal world was just there somewhere to make a living and, and create money so you can give it to the cause. So Combat 18 was against the state and, and pro-Ulster. What yeah. were you doing in Combat 18 to, to kind of make these ideologies exist or affect them? Initially, it was about recruiting as many sort of national socialists from any organisations as possible. Right. And what we did then as a, like a front organisation was create something called National Socialist Alliance, the NSA. And the best way I can describe it, it's a little bit like Sinn Féin and the IRA. That's how we would equate, you know, the NSA and C18. And, you know, it didn't matter what name you used, it was the it was definitely the same organisation, but it was just, you know, playing games with the system, really. We recruited a core of, of people, you know, ended up with about 20 sort of groups joining us all together. Um, and then it just sort of about, you know, looking at who the left-wingers were in your area, looking for counter-demonstrations, meetings... Um, and then we just raised, raised the bar, really, and we just started taking the, you know, the fight to either the government or supporters of left-wing ideology. Um, some of those involved were ignorant and were just, you know, racist and just wanted to attack anybody who was black or Asian. Mm. And, you know, for me, I just thought they were poor quality members and should be kicked out. And was there ever any part of what you did where it was about educating and talking about history and talking about political ideology and kind of helping people to form their opinions? Yeah, there was a lot of that. So we used to talk about ideology and it was everything from, you know, what national socialism was and what the, the vision we wanted for the future 
but you know it talked about blood and soil so that brought in you know discussions about ecology uh, we talked about religion so we talked about different forms of paganism and you know we didn't want people to be christian because we felt that that was a religion which at the end of the day was you know worshiping jesus who was jewish so you know from a crazy ideological point of view you then go you know we we can't follow christianity we have to have our own you know religion and then you embraced things like the norse gods so you'd be talking about odin and thor and it was very much about you know this was about creating a new man and a new life and a new society and were you looked at to being this kind of archetypal example of what that can be i lived the life that i advocated for everybody definitely we talked about creating Aryan homelands so a lot of the units would look at areas to relocate to and you know this is still going on today Mm. you know they realize they won't win against the british state so what can they do as an alternative So your personal life at the time, where are we now? Kind of mid-20s? Yeah, yeah. You know, I eventually left when I was sort of in my mid-30s and I I just decided this was just not a place to be. And the way I I eventually got there was when um, I was married at the time. My wife was, you know, completely, you know, non-political, hated what I was involved with. So she knew what you were about. Yeah, yeah, I um, I hid it yeah. from her initially and then eventually came out after about two years about the alternative lifestyle I had. Um, and she knew I was away a lot, but I used to lie and just say it was on my way with the football and I'm off Friday, I'll be back Sunday. And she, she sort of put yeah. up with that. Um, but then eventually she gave me an ultimatum and said it's either C18 or her. And cold and calculating i just said it's it's combat 18 i'm a soldier fighting a war and what happened after that how did you feel that really was the first sort of chink in my armor because you know we, we'd rode before she'd gone away to her mom's come back you know we'd done the traditional man thing you know flowers chocolates i'm sorry it'll never happen again and i'd be quiet then for maybe two or three months and then eventually she'd come back however this time that didn't happen and that really started to make me think about oh is this worth what I'm doing, losing a family? Because the whole idea is to, you know, get married, have children, you know, lots of children because the white race has been, you know, um, eradicated. Um, however, I I just thought, you know, that was that was a difficult time for me. And then eventually there was, um, there was a racist attack in Birmingham, which was the pinnacle moment for me, really, whereas I just thought, I'm out of here, I need to leave. What happened? Basically, there was a there was a C18 meeting in Birmingham City Centre, right by the law courts. There was a pub there, and after the meeting, we came out. All hell was breaking loose on Corporation Street, and when I run over, if I'm honest, I was being cold and calculating, and just didn't want anybody arrested. It was explained to me that this uh, black gentleman had called one of the young people uh, a Nazi something, and he was going to teach him a lesson. My first instinct was, well, how does he know you're an Nazi? You know, we don't wear insignia, we don't wear badges. Mm. And this young lad, only 18, was wearing a C18 badge. And I just thought, well, you haven't listened to what you've been told, so you need a discussion. But what really stuck out for me is what I could hear is like crying. 
and when I looked around there was a woman in a bus stop and two kids and that that really hit home that did I just thought I can't let this attack happen and so I stepped in the middle and I said to get to him you've got to get through me and you know it was completely stupid these 15 C18 lads wanted blood at that time and I, I believe to this day the only reason I, they didn't attack me was because I had a, a leading role within the movement and then two what I would call sergeant and arms jumped in with me and says no Nigel's right you know he's not the enemy because of his colour you know the British government is the enemy and those the ones that we should be attacking and then we just pulled down a black cab you know basically physically threw the black family into there you know give the guy the money and says drive them wherever they need but get them out of here now Right. And that, that for me was when I just thought, I'm out of here, I've got to go. Mm. So what happened next? How do you get out? Oh, well, you you have to plan. So I planned for years about, you know, I knew I couldn't stay in Birmingham, so I had to decide where I wanted to move to. I then had to save money, so I set about doing lots of overtime to, you know, sort of save up thousands of pounds to move. And then it was just... I decided I was going to like jump on a train, head away, choose a different city, and then just cut all contact. And that's exactly what I did. And for two years, I lived away. I managed to get my head together. I looked at society completely different. All the food that I would never have ate previously. I was sitting in every single restaurant you could find, you know, from Afro-Caribbean to Lebanese, you name it, I was in there. And I just thought, why didn't I do this earlier? And how was it for you psychologically? Was Were you a bit overwhelmed with the kind of, I don't know, it feels like there were so many rules and regulations to the way that you lived your life. It must have been a bit overwhelming to go from that to nothing. Yeah, it was massively overwhelming. I just, and I felt guilty about doing things. So right. it was like, you know, eating food, which, you know, you can't have that because, you know, that's foreign muck type of thing. You know, which sounds stupid now. It wasn't because it was foreign food, but you didn't want to give money to people who were, you know, of a different ethnicity. You should be buying your stuff from English businesses. Having that, those shackles taken off and saying, basically, I could do what I want was amazing absolutely amazing and that's why we encourage people now you know you can get out of the far right and we'll help you however from an emotional point of view it's it's really struggling because you there's so much paranoia you know you're looking over your shoulder all the time you know you have no friends because all your friends are in the far right so the fact that you've walked away you have nobody to turn to so it's basically a case of you on your own against the world Whereas now, obviously, you know, we've got Exit UK, which is a group of formers who are, who are there to help. So tell me the turning point then for you, the change from going, from just leaving them to then feeling like you needed to do something about who you had been and, and who you wanted to be. Yeah, so I, you know, eventually came back to Birmingham, you know, because I love the city so much. Um, you know, it's it's my home type of thing and it's where I feel the most comfortable. And then I set about then trying to make amends for my past. So I applied for lots of council jobs. It was all around community work, community neighbourhood warden schemes, community development, youth work. Whatever it was, I could make up for the you know mm. the destruction I'd, I'd, I'd put communities through. And through that, I met amazing people, everybody from guys setting up you know radio stations to temples to mosques, you name it. I didn't look at people as a community I looked at everybody as an individual 
and for me then that was that was like life changing I think and then you know as I moved on I eventually went on prevent training and prevent sort of explained obviously that they were all about safeguarding and looking after communities and my uh, manager said oh what did you think about the training and I said oh it's really good you know but there, there was a few things that it had actually missed and it's obviously going back like you know six years ago and my boss went oh well what do you know about it and I then sort of had the, like this eerie 30 seconds where I thought do I tell her or don't I and you know eventually I did and I said well I used to be involved in some of those groups and she was really shocked you know this lady was right. you know um a Catholic lady who had seen like the Protestant tattoos and just thought I was a football hooligan and I weren't really sure how to take that but just I just thought he was a football hooligan you know trying to make good for the past and then when I explained the real truth you know she was really shocked but you know she was amazing she just says um would you like to speak to young people about your experiences and, and you know try and educate them that was six years ago and started off in a few schools really paranoid did a few interviews on the TV with everything blacked out and my voice altered. Right. Right. And then when I got a message from the far right and they says, Oi, Nige, interesting to see what you're doing now. I was a little bit like, oh, God, what do I do? And I just thought then, do you know what? I'm going to try and make amends for what I've done and try and get people out of these organisations, but also try and help people and educate them that not to go into these organisations. They're not what they say they are. I mean, that's an incredibly courageous move when you look back at it. You know, you've had the message from the far right. You know that they're aware of what you're doing. You have this threatening situation going on and you still decided to, to kind of dedicate your life to that. How hard was that decision to make? I just think because of the determination I had in the far right, I, I have got that drive and that sort of ambition to do stuff, which I think's, you know, right. I know exactly what they're capable of. I don't underestimate what they can do to me without any doubt. But it's about doing the right thing. And, you know, if you... if people like myself formers don't come out and tell people what the far right's like we stand against all extremism all extremism is wrong but we tackle the far right because that's where we all come from but people teachers young people parents they all need to know what damage extremism does to people not just the individual but also as well you know the families you know the families have nobody to turn to and don't know what to do when you, their loved one becomes involved in extremism. And, you know, we are there to say you're not alone. You know, we will help you as much as we can. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, so let's talk about what you're doing now. So you've set up this this, um, organization called Exit UK, which helps people to to get out of the far right or to to prevent them from getting in. What have you learned, you know, now that you're in this situation where you're, you're kind of outside looking back in at how the whole process works about radicalization. What have you learned about a common thread that runs through these people that end up being radicalized? Is there a common thread that you can identify? Well, firstly, think, you know, times have changed from when I was involved to today. Today, there is no stereotypes you know, we speak right. to everybody from people who are, you know, ordinary working class living on council estates to people who live in, you know, houses which are over a million pounds and their son and daughter has got involved in these organisations. You know, these are professional people. Because of the internet, and this is the big change, you know, anybody can get access to a, an extremist message, whichever it is, whichever side it comes from. Mm. And extremism, it just kicks the other side. So if there is a far-right attack, it kicks off a reaction from other types of extremism and it just goes round and round and round. And our aim is to break that cycle. Some way we've got to, you know, explain that violence is never the answer. Violence and extremism, you may get quick wins, you know, and there may be the odd win that you think you've achieved something but in the long term, it achieves absolutely nothing other than harming the individual, their family, the community that they live in and the country that these people say that they love. You know what I mean? They're actually doing more harm to the country than they are ever doing trying to make it a better place to live. I was reading up about that, um, the, the Combat 18 situation that happened in, in Ireland with the English-Irish football match. Yeah, yeah. Were you there? What, were you part of that? Oh, it was, it, I mean, like, there was lots of different people who sort of went over and, you know, people were heading up to Scotland to fly over. People were sort of, you know, going via different places. If people couldn't go there, then they were going to Irish pubs within their own localities and kicking it off. And from my point of view, it was, it was a publicity stunt. It got the name out of the organisation. That, for me, wasn't, it wasn't sort of something which I would support because you know i wanted a the creation of a new man and the elite something which would take on the government the fact that you go into a country to fight over football if i'm honest i used to use the, the football to earn money sell badges magazines but i could never sort of get my head around football hooliganism because a lot of the time i just thought it was you know and, and i'm going to be quite sort of honest of how i looked at it at that point it was basically white man fighting white man and I used to think, you know, we've got, you know, we've got a lot more to fight about than, you know, the different colour of somebody's scarf or different nationality. And at what point, like, you know, you were saying you, you know, used to love reggae music and, and all of that stuff. And you kind of have to hide these parts of culture that you were interested in, that you consumed from the rest of the far right. But at what point did you realise that, you know, your views were were becoming racist in that Aryan, you're talking about the Aryan utopia and all of that. Like this seemed like a slow change for you because you didn't have that as a child. You weren't brought up with that. 
around no, you? No, definitely not. You know, I was brought up in a multi-racial, multicultural city, which, you know, was really strong. Yeah. Uh, you know, vibrant, etc. You know, I didn't have any fear or loathing of anybody of any colour. It was the indoctrination and the grooming of what the far right do. Um, and they yeah. took me in, they groomed me and then moved me on to embrace hate. You know, and eventually I joined a church. We advocated a thing called Rahoa, and Rahoa means racial holy war. And at the very end of my journey as an extremist, and I thought C18 was was lacking, I embraced that as as the end game. Really, I thought that really was the only way forward to have a religion based on on racial holy war, Rahoa. And then when you get to that point, you realise, you know, there's no turning back. This is about either the system's going to win and, you know, you're going to be dead or you're going to win and get the new, like you say, air in utopia. But thankfully, life kicks in and shows you that that's not the way to go. And it, and it sort of, you know, it shows you an alternative path. So it must have been so, so extreme for you, that change from, you know, feeling that strongly about race and the system to then going and doing this community work where you're working with people who, in mosques and temples and of all colours and creeds. I mean, what was that like, that kind of switch in perspective? It's frightening because everything you've been told, everything that you believe, right. when you actually go down and meet individuals... And, you know, as I said, it was never really about hatred of people uh, based on their sort of race or their culture, but it was part of the, the bigger battle. And when I actually engaged with these individuals, you know, whether they were, you know, black, Asian, Jewish, didn't didn't really matter, I just looked and found we have so many more things in common. We are different, but being different is great because you can respect the differences. And you're going, do you know what? You have differences to me, you have different values, you know, you have different music, food, whatever it is. And just like life, you don't like everything, but then it means that you don't, you know, you don't have to be respect, you know, disrespectful to that individual. You're going, you know what, that's great, but that's not for me. Mm. When we talk about things, we talk about, we have to explain about English heritage and culture as well. And, you know, if you've got somebody from Somalia and you're talking about things like Morris dancing and, and faggots and peas, they don't quite get that either. So it's just about education and saying, you know, all cultures are very, very different and we just have to explain about them and then we'll come away having a better understanding. And so when we have, like, an event, we will have things like an English table, a Polish table, Somali, whatever it is in that community. You know, there'll be music and food and everybody, though, has, a um, like, an A4 sheet, that's all it is, the history about their country, what they do, and then it'll be reasons why they came to the UK because, you know, we should be really proud that actually, you know, right. people are not going to Australia or America or different countries. They want to come to the UK. And it's not because the UK is a soft touch. It's actually because, you know, the UK has a lot to offer. But people coming from different countries have a lot to offer as well. You know, without immigration, you know, our NHS would not be as amazing as it is. And I don't actually think we, we sell that as, as well as we should. We've just got to become better car salesmen is one of my favourite um, you know, terms. We've basically got to get out there and sell how good this country is and actually how we can all get along. But we've got to do that via respect. What's a typical working day for you like now with regards to Exit UK? Wow. Start at seven or eight in the morning, kick the emails on. If I'm mentoring or training away, it's jumping on an early train, you know, after that's done. It could be mentoring an individual or two individuals in a day in various places in the UK. It could be delivering training sessions, 
We'll jump on forums and talk to individuals there. We can be chatting to somebody at two o'clock in the morning because we know if we come away at that time, that individual then might turn to somebody in the far right. And, you know, that that's something we just don't want to happen. So um, are you finding, as Exit UK exists, that there's more and more people reaching out to you? Are you finding this problem getting worse of, of far-right radicalisation? I mean, to give you an idea, so the uh, previous 12 months, April to April, we had um, 16 inquiries and 30 cases. Uh, from April of this year to, obviously, the end of September... With, uh, we've had 150-plus inquiries, and we're on to 41 cases. And a case being someone who's in there, being radicalised, and you're trying to exit. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, these are that can be three calls a day. It can be Skype, Zoom, whatever it is. It can be meeting these individuals. You know, it can be emails. Um, you know, and it, and it can take anything from eight weeks to convince somebody to leave and, and rebuild their life. Um, to two and a half years has been the longest individual we've had. And, and you know, we bought him out of an extreme organisation, System Resistance Network, uh, which was openly a, a Nazi organisation and a cover name for national action. And eventually we convinced him, you know, he needs to, to get out of that organisation. And, you know, eventually we got him back into college and doing good at school, whereas he failed all the exams. And, you know, you, you sort of feel like a proud dad, really, because you're like, you've got this lad who was, like, done awful at school. Mum and dad don't know what's going on. You know, he's reached out to us, and we've just basically had to go, right, you can talk to our young members who are in the 20s, and then, you know, the older guys will come in as, like, the the role model and go, you need to get your act together, and this is what you need to do. And we know what it feels like to hate the system and want to fight back. But let's look at the reality of how it's affected you as an individual. And once you strip that all down, they're going, oh, my God. And we just say, well, don't yeah. do not do what we do and waste 10 or 20 years involved in a movement. That will give you nothing back. What's the most common way for people to get re- recruited today? Um, from our experience, 70% of the people we engage with are recruited online. And that can be a mixture of social media, so Discord and, you know, Telegram. And we're not telling you, you know, anything that people don't already know. Those are the two most recruited on platforms at the moment. And talking about the actual organisation, organisations, I know there's probably so many splinter groups. How big and how slick is the far right movement today compared to when you knew it? It's changed a lot and it's changed a lot because of the internet. The far right feel they're a lot more secure because they're online and it's very faceless. Um, it's hard to judge with numbers because the far right today have learnt, you know, you don't need a membership card, you don't need to meet in person, you don't need to have big meetings. You know, you can do a lot of activity online, create videos, memes, you name it and and we always say, you know, you can actually talk to thousands of people online instead of, you know, going and leafleting maybe a street or, you know, an estate. Don't need to do that anymore. Get online, post a yeah, meme, yeah. post up a video, and you've got that message out to thousands. That unfortunately works, and we've got to understand that the far right are great recruiters. They understand that emotion recruits. Facts and figures don't normally recruit. Emotion, pictures, personal stories will recruit people to the far right. And they know that. We've just got to be as clever and as dedicated as they are to sort of counter that argument and say, if somebody's been attacked by somebody of colour, 
and they've been mugged, then I can totally understand why that individual hates that one individual. But he shouldn't hate the whole community. An individual has made that decision to hurt somebody. It hasn't mm. actually been the whole community. And when we do that and then yeah. we introduce people to different communities, they go, mm. I can't get it now. I still like the guy who mugged me or, you know, the guy who had a fight with for whatever reason and he just happened to be a different colour. But then he may then use that as an excuse to hate the wider community. And we just go, no, that's wrong. And people acknowledge that and accept it. So, Nigel, it feels like Exit UK is such a crucial organisation in terms of the work that you're doing and scarily unique. You know, it, it, it should be bigger. It should be supported on a government level. Are you getting the support that you need to do the work that you do? If I'm honest, we know we can do a lot more, definitely. And we do need support. You know, we need finance to pay for staff. So, you know, we want to be available 24-7. When we are working on Christmas Day or New Year's Eve and everybody's having a great time, that's a really vulnerable time for people in the far right. They need somebody to reach out to. We don't want them to have to wait. We want them to be somebody available on our 0800 number whereas they can talk to us. So, you know, we do need support. We're looking now to get Exit to become a charity. So we've just made the first steps to register as a, a charitable company and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to become a charity and apply for more funding. So everything down to accommodation, printing, software, anything that would be of use to a company, that's, that's what we need. We have a thing now called Peace Advocates, and it's basically businesses who support what we do. They basically reach out to us and go, you know, we can offer you this. You know, we might not be able to give you money, but maybe you don't want to use your laptop with a bit of tape hanging over the top. You want a, you know, you want a new thing that's going to work. And little things like that, everybody can do something to counter extremism. And I think if we all do a little bit, then actually we're going to live in a, you know, a better society tomorrow than we did today. You know, when you said you were a teenager and, you know, when you joined it for the first time, you kind of lost your friends. Have you ever got back in touch with them? Have you ever gained contact with those people from your past? Yeah, it's interesting. A few have reached out. It's been quite tough because they've said we always knew you was a good guy. But they've said, you know, we, we just lost, we couldn't we couldn't connect to you, you were blind, you didn't see it. People who I've, I've done some awful things in the past to, uh, you know, I've even managed to apologise to a couple of them. One guy, he was a, and this sounds absolutely awful, but he was a, he was a black gentleman who sort of lived on our estate and we even put a burning cross in his front garden because we felt he was challenging us on the estate and if he challenged us then, you know, there only had to be one victor on that. And, you know, I just I just met him in a supermarket. He looked at me, I looked at him, and I thought, that can't be. And I just I just sort of went back, really, and um, I just sort of apologised. Um, and that was the only, you know, the only thing actually I could do. And what did and he, he just, do? And he just, he just laughed, and he was like, do you know what? He says, I knew I'd see you somewhere about... And he just, we just chatted for 20 minutes in the supermarket. And then, you know, he just, he sort of moved on. And it was just, it's just a really amazing thing to be able to do. And, you know, the fact that he, um, he accepted it. He was gracious about it, yeah. Yeah, he was, um, he was just, he was shocked, obviously. And, you know, he, he told me a few home truths about what it was like living on that estate and the fear we, we created. And, you know, when I said it was intentional... And I look back and, you know, I was totally ashamed of what I've done. Um, but 
I was, a di- I was a different man then. That's all I can really explain. One last question. For anyone out there who is worried about someone, who knows someone, who is vulnerable, who is experiencing anger and maybe channeling it in the wrong places in an extreme way, what advice would you give to those people? Okay, firstly, you know, everybody can change. You know, society needs to accept people can change. I never thought I'd change my views, you know, being a far activist for 20 years, but people can. If you need help, you need assistance, you know, you're not alone. You know, all you've got to do is, is reach out to Exit UK and, you know, you will talk to people who will help you. There's no time uh, restrictions on it. We're there for as long as you need us. And, you know, we will give you as much support as we can uh, at whatever time of the day. You know, I mean, if you need us, we're there. Nigel, I really appreciate your time and your honesty. Thank you so much for this conversation. No, thank you so much for asking us. Thank you so much to Nigel for his honesty in that episode. You could really hear the pain in his voice when he was talking about saying sorry to that guy in the supermarket, you know, it's something that he will be struggling with and working through for the rest of his life. And clearly there's a catharsis involved in the work that he's doing now through Exit UK. Listen, if you want to know more about that work and that organisation, if you need help yourself or if you know someone who does, then please go to www.exituk.org or you can contact them on email, info at exitfamilysupport.org through their Facebook page or you can call them on this number 0800 999 that's 0800-999-1945 and all of that stuff is in the show notes too if you want to go check out at another time all right thank you for your comments on the incredible force of nature that is beth ditto what a woman so many of you loving her massive reactions to last week's episode shout out to selena revai who says bow down to queen beth ditto she had me in fits of laughter she is so sweet and kind love love loved this episode and hello to charlie burns talking about the clip that we put up on instagram of beth talking about her loving relationship and how you know when a certain type of loving relationship is right or wrong charlie burns says my definition of healthy love is is it easy that's one of the main differences when I found the right person for me. It was so simple. It was so easy. Do let us know your thoughts. Please rate, review and subscribe and tell your friends and family. Send these episodes to people. Let them know, uh, especially this one with Nigel. I really hope that this episode can be pushed and spread as far and as wide as possible. I am back next week with another fascinating conversation, this time with Captain Tammy Joe Schultz, a pilot who not only fought her way to being one of the first female pilots in the US Navy back in the 80s, but went on to become an American hero when she miraculously landed a commercial plane after one of the engines blew up mid-flight and exploded one of the cabin windows. It's a very inspiring conversation with someone who has fought for, witnessed and affected very real changes in aviation in her own life and in other people's lives. Not to be missed. This episode was produced by Louise Mason through Rethink Audio. Thank you as always for listening and see you next week. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.